Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am O'Brien McMahon, and this is People Business. Every business is in some way a people business. From Silicon Valley to the restaurant down the street, every business relies on groups of people working together toward a common cause. That's no easy task. While the world around us has evolved into a high-tech, interdependent matrix, our individual software is largely the same as it was 10,000 years ago. We are social, emotional animals balancing a need to fit in with a desire to stand out. This is a show that explores individual and interpersonal dynamics, helping you become your best self while making the most of your business and the people in it. If you enjoy this episode, make sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Enjoy the show. In this episode, I'm joined by Linnea Gandhi. Linnea is a researcher, teacher, and practitioner of behavioral science in business settings. And she's obsessed with error, studying it, fixing it, and even embracing it to enable better decisions by individuals and organizations. Her work on error intentionally straddles academia and the real world. She teaches decision science at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business, studies it as part of her PhD at the Wharton School of Business, and consults on it through her company, Behavioral Sight. Linnea's team is launching an online course empowering individuals to tackle noise, the unwanted variability in human judgment. This course is designed to be the complement to the recently released book on the topic called Noise by Daniel Kahneman and two other co-authors. Linnea spent the last three years supporting this team with research and editing behind the scenes. And for listeners interested in the course after you listen to the episode, you can find the link in the show notes. And if you enter McMahon75, that's M-C-M-A-H-O-N-7-5, you will get $75 off the price. This is a great conversation. Linnea is one of the smartest people I know and definitely one of the smartest people I know when it comes to behavior and behavior science. She talks about this concept of noise, what it is and why it's creating bad decisions. And we talk about her course and she gives some tips on how to overcome noise and put some processes in place in your own life to take action and make sure that you get to better outcomes. Her course is going to be great. This conversation was fantastic. I hope you enjoy it. Here is Linnea Gandhi. And we are live with Linnea Gandhi. Linnea, when I put this show together, I was initially made a list of all the people that I wanted to be on it. And you were at least in the top 10 of that list. So I am very excited to finally get you on. Had to wait a year for the timing to be right, but this is going to be a fun conversation. I always love talking to you. So excited to dive into all of your wonderful wisdom. So welcome. Oh, thank you, O'Brien. That's such a lovely welcome. I'm really happy to be here. And it's so much fun to talk with you as well. So want to dive into this. And we got a bunch of fun stuff to cover, but want to just get like your origin story. So how did you come to be doing the behavior science work that you do now? Like what set you on that path? I wish it was a linear story. I mean, we can all make a linear story by looking backwards, right? And connecting the dots and making sense of things kind of what we're programmed to do as humans. But really, I think my origin story was a lack of having a clear specialization and seeing everyone around me feeling like an expert in what they're doing. In my MBA program, saw all these people who were really good at consulting and banking and, you know, 
passionate about healthcare and the stuff that I was really interested in, I didn't see this clear career path in, which was I really enjoyed people problems. So I had spent some time in consulting and I loved teams and organizations. I loved coaching of people in organizations. But at the time, it just felt like all those topics were really touchy feely and, you know, not science driven. And anyone could hang a shingle and be a coach or work on these topics. And so it really discouraged me from wanting to dive in. And so when I was in my, you know, in business school, which is a great opportunity, honestly, to step back, I want to specialize in this, but I want to do it right. And how do I do it? And everyone else is on their career path. And I really just got lucky. I stumbled into behavioral science there in the program in one of my first classes in my first quarter. No, managing in organizations with Professor Ayelet Fishbach. And I remember loving the topics and then seeing every slide had a scientific study cited. Like, oh my gosh, there's a science behind the topic that I like. And then that really got the ball rolling of saying, oh, I, maybe I could specialize in this. Maybe this is the path I want to be on. And I was fortunate to take a bunch of the PhD courses, my electives, when I was in the program. And that really enabled me to have a jumping off point after graduation to work in a behavioral science consulting firm. And, you know, you can see there then it, that kind of, I think, got the ball rolling. But it was really right place, right time, a need to want to specialize. Yeah. So to go from that, from just, you know, hey, there's a, there is a science here. This is something I can pursue to getting aligned with Daniel Kahneman and having a pretty extensive working relationship with him. How did you come to get in his sphere and, and be doing work with him? You know, a lot of life is what, it's just skill and luck. I think I have skill, but I've gotten a lot of luck in terms, again, of timing. So the firm that I joined after my MBA was called TGG, stood for the greatest good. And it was run by Steve Levitt and several other academics. Richard Thaler was affiliated with it. And Richard Thaler had been one of my professors in the MBA program. And so I really only found out about this firm through Richard. So that was right place, right time. He recommended me. I got in. That was luck and some skill. And then some time into my work at TGG, a new project came up that Daniel Kahneman had helped to sell, and he was going to be the academic partner on it. And again, right place, right time. I was the main person you know, that had capacity and was at the right seniority to be able to lead the project from the consultant side. And that became how I met Danny. I remember it was at a financial services firm in New York. So I flew from Chicago to New York. Danny's based in New York. And we were going to meet in the lobby of that financial services firm. That was going to be our first meeting to kick off with the client and the first time he and I would meet. And I remember walking into the lobby, looking around. Of course, I know what he looks like. He has no idea who I am. And I find him sitting in one of these chairs in the lobby, just kind of just hanging out. And I walk up to him and I introduce myself and he goes, oh, that's very nice to meet you. And then I say, I don't know why I said this. I said, you know, you're like a God to me. <laughs> like, I don't know just why right I off said the it. Bat. Just right just, off the bat. Really, after introducing myself, that's basically what I said. And he chuckles, you know, in his way. And it's like, wow, that's a terrible way to introduce yourself. It's kind of like meeting, you meet a celebrity and you're like, you don't know what to say. So you say something very embarrassing. Yeah. Then that from then on, I've, I've really been able to work with him 
gosh, really ever since then in various different projects. Yes. So he did not run away from me after I called him a god (laughs) is really the summary. It's funny because I I laugh at that. But, you know, knowing you the way that I do, I could see that coming off as very endearing, too, because I think you just I think you just you're a person who just wears it on your sleeve. And so, you know, it's not like, yeah, maybe it was like a little fangirl moment, but it was also, you know, I'm sure it was also just very like honest and sincere. So for listeners who don't understand the few names that you've just dropped in there, which are quite impressive, who is Daniel Kahneman? Who is Danny? Oh, Daniel Kahneman is, well, like a god (laughs) in behavioral science. No, I I just, he's uh, a Nobel Prize winner. I believe it was 2002. I should know this off the top of my head. Early 2000s, he won the Nobel Prize in economics. 2002. I have that in my notes. Thank you. (laughs) Of course you. This is why we all love you. So he won the Nobel Prize in 2002, which is really when a lot of his work more publicly came to fame. And he's really transformed the field of psychology, the field of economics, you know, even business by helping uh, start to systematically measure when people make errors, particularly cognitive errors. And that had really broken a lot of the assumptions in economics, where we presume people are rational, and business, where we presume people, again, are rational, using all the information in front of them. His work was sort of the inception point for many different strands of work to disrupt this assumption of rationality in econ, finance, business, medicine. And so for that, of course, he got a prize for really changing how we think about academia, how we think about the world. Awesome. And I want to get into some of that work here for the majority of the conversation. But, you know, it occurred to me as you were talking about your path and how you got connected to Danny. I mean, you name dropped Stephen Levitt, Richard Thaler, you know, and then obviously getting to Danny and and being a behavior science and psychology nerd that I am. I, I know who those people are. And it, it just occurred to me that like not you didn't just get this opportunity with Daniel Kahneman, like you were connected to other people, even if it was just that you took a class and they were your teacher. But I mean, you've spent time with people who are highly successful in their field, very well known, very sought after, right? People are trying to get in these spheres and, and you've you've just wound up in them, not just wound up, but you are no, in them. Yeah. <laughs> are there any lessons that you've learned about working with top quality people and how to get yourself into those spheres in a meaningful way? Oh, what a lovely question. I think it's doing the work to put yourself in the place where you can have good timing. So although I should say for Richard Thaler, I deserve no credit. My husband made me take his course. I said, who the heck is Richard (laughs) Thaler? This his syllabus is all about sports examples. I don't like sports. I don't know sports. And he, he's like, no, no, sweetie, he's a really big deal in behavioral finance. You have an opportunity to take a class with him. You should bid the points and get the class. It's fine, fine. And then, of course, you know, months later, I'm helping edit his book and TA for him. <laughs> so my husband gets that. But in general, right, put yourself, do the work to put yourself in the places where these people are. And then if you have an opportunity to work with them, I kind of think of it like client work to some extent. You have to earn the rights. Like I've done work that like copy editing things, being willing to say yes to any task that allows you to be in their sphere and learn from them and apprentice under them. And then you get more and more responsibility as they learn to trust you and, and get value from you. 
So I guess I would say earn the right. Maybe that sounds arrogant. I don't mean to sound arrogant. I don't know. It doesn't sound arrogant at all. You know, if I got an email, I responded right away. I think many people, you know, in that position would probably do that. But it really did mean, you know, putting high priority on their requests and being willing to play many different tasks in order to get whatever work it was they wanted, you know, done in a timely way. And then they learn you're reliable and that you do high quality work and then they use you more and it kind of snowballs. But honestly, I would say that for anybody who you want to learn from and respect doesn't have to be a famous person. And I would say that for my client work as well. You know, there are certain projects that I want to pitch people on because I think they're high value, but I have to earn the right to do that. You know, I've earned the right to try to change their mind about it or to to ask for a higher stakes or a higher risk project. And I, I think of that for my relationships as well. You know, I think you walk an interesting line as I'm thinking about this now, because as you said, like you have made yourself of service to these people and then proven valuable, right? You've done great work. You've been responsive. You, you know, bent over backwards and that adds value and that then like draws you in. In some settings though, you know, if you have a good boss or mentor, that's great. And they help prop you up. If you have a bad one, they just take advantage of that. I mean, maybe it's just the nature of the people that you've chosen and that they're great leaders. I'll I'll turn this around and ask you that as a question in a second. But, you know, it also strikes me that, you know, maybe there's an element to how you've approached it that has also allowed you to then go on and do your own great work and sort of elevate yourself. So how how do you do that? Is it about finding good mentors or is it is there something in how you then step out on your own eventually that allows you to both be a great mentee and then also sort of step into your own power in whatever that subject is. Yeah, I think you're right. There's a danger in working with people with that mentality because they can absolutely take advantage of it. And you can also get stuck in their shadow, even if they don't mean to do that to you. The two people I've done that the most with have been Richard Thaler and Daniel Kahneman across teaching and book projects and client projects. And I wish I could say that I had vetted them for their ability to give me, you know, more and more responsibility. I did not, although counterfactually, had they not been good managers or leaders, I would hope that I would have stopped wanting to do so much work with them. But, you know, Richard would just give me more and more autonomy. I now when we teach, I'm still technically his TA, but I do lectures at night. I don't do review sessions. I do my own lecture. And, you know, he he gives me the credibility. You know, he, he makes sure the students understand that I have something of value, even though I don't have a Nobel Prize. And and he does that very intentionally in the syllabus, in the first class. You know, he wants to empower me to be able to be a better teacher and gain my own platform. And the same goes for Danny. You know, I think even in that first project, <laughs> that first project when I told him he was a god to me, you know, we worked together for I guess about six months on that project. And of course we had we had a team working with us as well. It wasn't just me and him, but I was managing the team and, um, and he was managing the relationship with the client. And I remember we had kind of, I don't say storming and norming, but it wasn't always perfect. And we got to this equilibrium where it was very, it was clear, you know, his expertise is going to be on the content. We were building a a performance evaluation tool, an HR tool that was going to be, you know, better for culture and the psychology of evaluating each other. He is the psychologist. That is his expertise. I was a consultant. I had many more years of consulting experience and training from BCG and others. And so we we actually had a very explicit conversation at one point. And ever since then, it's 
it's gone really well, where he's like, I own the content, you own the client. And like, it, very few people, I think, with his power would ever do that. Would just say, hey, I recognize your expertise. I even remember, you know, we had, we had arguments on content. He would, you know, generally win. If we have arguments about the client, I would generally win. But it wasn't even an argument. It was more, you know, discussion points. He, I think anyone I've really worked with has ingrained in me this idea of having no sunk costs. Meaning, if we're editing a memo back and forth, and I send him my draft that I've worked on for hours, and I'm really excited and hope he likes it, you know, it's in his voice. And if I get a draft back from him that looks nothing like it, that's okay, right? Don't be attached to the prior draft. We're both iterating this back and forth. And in fact, he once told me when he, you know, didn't take any of my edits, he said, I hated what you did so much that it clarified my thinking. Oh, interesting. I love saying that. I mean, you know, he obviously said it with love and endearment very kindly to me, but it's really ingrained this idea of like, don't be so attached to your prior work, to your drafts. If you're in a creative process with somebody else, things are going to change and you have to accept that change. And in fact, I don't always look at things with track changes. I just look at the simple version and then I'm not attached to what I lost. I can move on and keep making the document better and not have to say, oh, that was my word. Why did you delete my word? And I learned a lot of that from Danny. So I think in a roundabout way to answer your question, I partly got lucky, and but I also think I would have left because these two gentlemen who have amazing careers really have this mentality of empowering, of giving autonomy, of developing, and being willing to like change their mind and say, oh, you're right, go forward, go do that thing. And that, to me, you know, is one of the reasons I keep working with them. Awesome. Thank you for going down that rabbit hole with me because I know that was not one that we had prepped on. But as you were talking, I was like, God, it's, I want to know more about this. So thank you for indulging me there for a second. So let's talk about the work. You worked with Daniel Kahneman and Cass Sunstein. Did I say that right? And Olivier Siboney? I would say Siboney, but that's Siboney. my like years of French. Yes. Yes. Three awesome, very different men and authors in their own right. And would you tell us a little bit just about that book and, and what it is? Yeah, so the book, it came out a bit ago. It's called Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment. And it does have three authors. One, a psychologist, Daniel Kahneman. Another, a, a lawyer and policy scholar, Cass Sunstein. And another, a businessman and also a psychologist now in his own right, Olivier Siboney. And you know, they come from three different worlds. And this book project emerged from actually a few years ago when Danny, myself, Andrew Rosenfield, and Tom Blazer wrote an article for HBR on noise based on a project that we had done. And, you know, we were kind of dismayed because nothing really took off after the article. We thought that people would love this topic of noise and want to talk about it. This was back in 2016. And nothing really happened. <laughs> And then Danny kept thinking about it and talking with Olivier, who was a, a collaborator of his at the time. And this book project emerged as something they wanted to do. Cass joined on very, very early. They had some early, an early conversation with him where his eyes lit up and he had all these amazing examples. And they said, oh, we need Cass. I mean, he writes so fast. He's so knowledgeable about the policy space. We need him. And so then they became this trio and brought me in to help manage the whole project. You were kind of the project manager, is that right? Yeah, so I managed all the ideas that happened in meetings, sent back notes, clarified things we needed to do next, organized all the research associates or did the research myself because, you know, and they will be the first to say this, this is not their field. 
well, it's partly their field, I should say, but it's not, noise is not something that they spent decades studying. It's not like Thinking Fast and Slow that Danny wrote based on years of research he had been involved in or very close to. This was them venturing into a relatively newer territory for them that they were passionate about, and they had to do a lot of research to understand what was going on and to find good examples. So I managed that process. And then I was in the meetings with them, you know, offering suggestions and later stages edited the documents or the manuscript rather. And yeah, it was, it was great. It was a great learning experience. And so what is noise? Noise is the other half of the error equation that we don't pay attention to. So if you think about error in the world, decision-making error, you have bias and you have noise. We talk about, we see bias all the time. That just means a shared error. For instance, if we're planning a project, we might all be a bit overconfident. We may all uh, underestimate the time it takes to complete that project. But that's not the only error that's happening. If we look at O'Brien's estimate and my estimate and Caitlin's estimate, you know, you might be a little bit more overconfident than the rest of us. Or, you know, Caitlin might be less overconfident, but only on the nights she hasn't slept because of your new baby. You know, I might be less overconfident than both of you overall. So there's these individual differences that are stable and there's individual differences that kind of interact with the maybe the project plan we're looking at and there's these contextual differences like not getting a lot of sleep that can impact and create variability that creates error away from the appropriate project plan estimate but that's really hard to see i mean how many times are we all going to write down that estimate and how many times are we going to do it over and over again such that you can see what you would have done had you gotten more sleep we don't live life in the counterfactual and we often aren't looking at variability between each other because we divide and conquer. And so this part of error that, you know, is, is just as important as bias often gets overlooked. And so this is where I get to put my novice hat on and uh, learn from the master. So this is the fun part. So bias to me seems like it's programming in our head that sends us down the wrong path or create or heads us towards about a bad outcome. What does noise do? It does the same thing. So I think the confusion that I have struggled with, that we struggle with in even writing the book and how to put it forward is that the word bias has grown beyond its statistical roots. Okay. At the end of the day, bias is a statistical concept. It just means a systematic deviation, you know, to the left, to the right, to the up, down. Whereas noise is the spread, the scatter, the standard deviation. But in psychology, you know, actually much thanks to Daniel Kahneman, we're looking for these systematic shared errors all the time. And psychological bias is a term that sprung up many, many decades ago. So if we think about overconfidence, it's a psychological bias. It tends to push us all in the same direction in terms of, you know, project planning estimates or optimism. So if I could just say this back to you. So bias, if you think about running sort of test after test after test, bias is going to group all of the responses to say, we're all getting pulled down to this quadrant of the graph because something's going on that is affecting all of the decisions in the sample. And it's pulling all of our decisions close together and off to one side. Noise is saying, 
our decisions are all over the chart and there's there's no grouping at all it's just we're all over the place yes it's very much like that i think the trick is that where does noise come from it comes from psychological bias <laughs> and then you're like what my head just exploded and so noise is you only see noise when you look at the aggregate right if you have the just o'brien making that one decision it's impossible for me to see noise it's one data point but as soon it's as my I have, own bias I mean, it could be your own bias if we're comparing it to what's accurate and I can see that you're off, then I would say, yep, that's a psychological bias. But then if I get more and more people, I can start to see, yeah, maybe none of them are hitting what's accurate, but they're not all hitting where O'Brien was. Maybe they're hitting in the opposite direction. So let's think of a hiring process where you're having people look at resumes and decide whether to bring them in for an interview. Often hiring teams have a few people who do this, right? There's so many resumes that come in. You can't expect one person to go through all of them. And so they get randomly allocated, let's say, across three people. You might find that all three people are, say, biased against people from the South. I'm making this up, right? Because maybe they all grew up in the North and they're like, oh, Southerners, they're not going to fit in with our culture. They may not have that conscious, but it might be a bias. And so you might see across all three piles of resumes, people from the South are systematically not making it through. Or you might find that, you know, person A and person B have opposite biases. Person A might actually index towards people from the South because they grew up in uh, Atlanta, whereas person B grew up in Milwaukee and therefore might be biased towards people to the North. And so you can see how the two piles of resumes in front of them can be treated differently. That's variability. Here's the crazy thing. Both of them are biased towards their home location. So that's a shared psychological bias. But the content of their home location is different. And that's what makes that error turn into noise at the aggregate level. Got it. And so when you think of ease of recall, or anchoring or any of these biases, the content of them can be different across people and that can drive spread. So ease of recall, meaning the thing that was most recent or most easily comes to memory because of its vividness, I tend to over-index towards and think it's more likely. Well, what happened most recently to me is different than what happened most recently to you. So again, in the hiring process, if I just got burned by someone who left the company and their name was Dan, and now I'm reading a resume for someone like Dan, I might say, mm, let's pass on Dan. You didn't have that experience. Maybe you had one with Sarah. And so you would do the same thing to a Sarah resume, but not to the Dan resume. Same psychological bias going on, but different content of the bias drives the noise. Okay. So that is a great example for my head, because one of the things that I had been struggling with and thinking about this is like, so what? Why do we care about this? And it seems to me from what you just said is like that there's inefficiency going on all over the place that we're just not paying attention to. And so all of our systems could potentially have this, in, this inefficiency that we're not aware of. And therefore, like in, in your example with the candidates, we're missing on all these great candidates. And we've done all this work to make sure that we're removing the biases that we want to remove, but we're not accounting for the noise and everybody's individual differences to get to what, what is really the best candidate for XYZ company. 
Exactly. If you were all rejecting Dan's, you were all rejecting people from the South more systematically, we would catch that often in the data because it's such a big egregious bias if you start looking for it. But it's hard for me to go in and say, okay, what's O'Brien's? O'Brien's specific biases and content of them. And even harder for me to say, wow, I think this resume cycle, O'Brien has had a new baby and he's not sleeping much because he's making decisions differently than he did last cycle. How often do I go in and I look for the counterfactual O'Brien? Now, out of time, right? And yet it's happening every day. And it's not just about removing inefficiency and getting to that best candidate. It's about empowering equity. Because all of these candidates who submitted resumes who could be great for this position are subject to two lotteries. The first is who is reviewing their resume? Is it O'Brien? Is it Caitlin? Is it Linnea? And our own personal biases? And which version of that person is coming to the table to look at the resumes that day? Is it O'Brien with a great night of sleep? Or did O'Brien's baby cry all night and he's approaching that stack of resumes? So it's not just about the inefficiency of the company, which of course it's highly costly, but it's also about equity to the end customer who's experiencing that inequity. Like the company might look at all the data and say, look, overall, all those little biases wash out. That's true. On average, on average, you're probably calibrated. But every single data point is a person. And each one of them, even if they're being treated too optimistically or too pessimistically, biased in one way or another, they're bearing the brunt of that cost, even if it all seems to wash out statistically for the company. Yeah. Well, and even thinking about it from the most, or I guess the least empathetic view, is even from like a risk management standpoint, you know, overall, you might be great, but you might have one or two people who are biased to make a decision that's going to get you in a whole lot of trouble, whether it's discrimination, you know, against people of color in the recruiting process or some kind of lack of morality when it comes to investing or, you know, any other number of examples where just negligence. Yeah, right. It can. It doesn't have to be that they're like a racially biased person. But it might be that that's starting to creep out. And the fact that they're not attending to it and the company isn't is negligent. So if I'm a hiring manager, especially listening to this analogy, I think my head just exploded being like, how in God's name am I supposed to keep my arms around all of this? Like anybody who's managing a group of people who are making these decisions, it's like, my God, I'm just trying to manage baseline personalities. And that is a daunting process, let alone trying to understand everybody's individual brain programming and then day to day, hour by hour, whether they got a good night's sleep, just got a bad phone call about, you know, losing a loved one or their dog is sick or like, you know, I mean, it's the rate that this stuff would come at you is so fast and there's, it would just be, get so massive so quickly. So Linnea, <laughs> where do people even start to wrap their heads around solving some of these problems? Well, the beauty of noise is that you don't need to know what the biases are to start correcting them. You know, we spent so many decades focusing on bias and on debiasing people. Well, guess what? If I want to debias you, I have to know what bias I'm debiasing. I got to figure out all that stuff about O'Brien and his overconfidence and his recency bias and which ones are happening when for him. That's exhausting. And I'm probably going to overcorrect. I'm not going to notice some of the right ones. I'm going to pick the wrong ones. Some of them might cancel out. So trying to go in and enumerate all the things that could be 
slightly erroneous or biased, so to speak, for O'Brien and Caitlin and Lania or our group, that's not necessarily what we would recommend to tackle all of this error and noise. Instead, we would recommend something called decision hygiene, which is kind of intentionally not a sexy word, right? It comes from a correlate with, with medicine, with disease. So if I want to cure you of a disease, well, I could try to inoculate you first, right? I could try to give you a vaccine so you don't get COVID. Well, the vaccine is based off of me knowing COVID and the various strains that you're going to get exposed to. And then I need to give it to you in advance and hope that it sticks for however long you might be exposed. I could also say, okay, you got COVID. Let me give you the antidote. Let me give you the medication that fights the symptoms or fights the root cause. Again, that medication has to be specific to COVID-19, to the bug, the problem that I think you have. And so inoculation in advance or medication after the fact, like this is actually how we've often treated bias. We give you a debiasing training in advance of you going through experiences that might have bias. But that means that training has to enumerate all the potential biases and pray to goodness that that training is going to stick, which we know it often doesn't. Yeah. That's the other thing. It's not just about training, right? Like the person then has to pay attention to it, follow through with it, make a change, you know, and be like, I mean, some of us have biases and you're like, hey, you're biased against this. And it's like, yes, I am. Cool. <laughs> right. Exactly. Great. What do yeah. I do about it? Exactly. Which is why inoculation just doesn't work. And neither necessarily does debiasing after the fact, this medication. Say, okay, I'm going to look at all these resume decisions you've made, O'Brien, before I push them through. And I'm going to actually recalibrate them. Anytime somebody is from the South or their name is Dan or whatever, I'm going to override your decision. That means I need to know exactly what I'm overriding and correcting for. The alternative is decision hygiene, which in the mortal medicine and in, in, in bacteria and germs would just be washing your hands. You know, wash your hands, you know, don't sneeze without covering your mouth, do all these appropriate hygienic practices. And guess what? You are not going to get sick as much. I don't know what germs you're killing when you wash your hands, but I know you're killing a lot of them. So there's a correlate for that in decision making, which is called decision hygiene. Some of the key rules around that are using structure, checklists. So every time I go through this resume, I have a checklist of the five things that I should be paying attention to and only those things. I can also use decision rules and waiting rules or algorithms to say, guess what? For this very first round of resume review, we're only going to pay attention to GPA and SAT score. And we're going to use that to cut off people at a certain threshold. So no, no human judgment involved. And that already helps me narrow my pool. And then I can use human judgment in the second part. But if we didn't use human judgment, let's say that, or we didn't use an algorithm there, O'Brien might say, oh, this person's SAT score is low, but they have this experience, right? And he might say that on some days and not others. Or you might say it in Caitlin might. And that's where you get that error. So using algorithms, using rules, and using relativity. So saying, I don't know which ones of these to give us, you know, different scores to. And you might give someone an, I don't know, an 80% rating on one day or a 90% rating in terms of, you know, I want to hire them on another. If I use relative scales and I say, I'm just going to rank them, or I'm going to say, this person looks like a top decile candidate, or this person looks like Joe, who's our iconic top decile candidate, using these relative rankings, that also helps reduce noise. So structure, algorithms, and relative thinking are great techniques for reducing all of these biases and influences that 
could make our judgment go awry, differing from each other and differing from ourselves. You know, it's interesting. Last summer, I interviewed a Navy SEAL and we were talking about leadership and we were talking about recruiting. Um, he actually had a, had a book coming out called The Talent War on how to find the best talent. And we were talking about uh, the BUDS process, which is BUDS is what you have to complete to become a Navy SEAL. It's, it's the training program. And what he was saying is that they have different gates. They call them gates. And he said, the first one is purely physical. It's what you think of when you see a YouTube video about SEAL Hell Week. Like, we just need to know that you can come in and physically do the job. And anyone who can't physically do the job gets cut. Then we need to know you can mentally do the job. And so they go through Hell Week, and then their phase two is pool. So they're testing your swimming capability because seals need to be able to swim and they're testing your ability not to freak out because when you can't breathe you will freak out you know if you've if you've not slept and you can't breathe you know you make bad decisions and the people who can get through that then get to the next phase and then they start to do some of the actual training with some of the weapon systems i don't know if that's the third one but you know eventually they get to the weapon systems and it's like if you can't handle the weapon systems you don't get to become a navy seal and so they they go through these and he said once you get through a gate we close it and so you know we say okay you can do this now we're going to move to the next thing now we're going to move to the next thing now we're going to move to the next thing and that's essentially what you were talking about with your step two where you come up with decision rules where you say okay first we're just going to look at this let's let's figure out like what's the baseline that we need and let's let's pull that filter out and then let's figure out what the second thing is and we pull that out and so it's interesting to hear you talking about that here with you know decision hygiene around some very technical stuff around noise, having seen that application and, and how they use that pretty effectively. I love that example. That's actually a good example of structure and these like preset rules or thresholds because they've said, I'm not going to go look at O'Brien as a holistic individual with all his greatness and flaws. I'm going to be really specific about what I look at in what order. And that's the only thing I care about at that step. And I'm going to evaluate it independently of the other steps. How often do we actually do that in a resume review or an interview process, right? It's all kind of a jumble. Even if we have a checklist, we might have a little bit of a halo effect. We said, gosh, he answered that first question so well. And so this second question is not so good, but it creeps in and washes over the mediocrity of the second statement. And I end up maybe accepting it versus imagine we had all, we had all the time in the world, one person interviews on one question and that's the only question they ask and then another person interviews on a different question that's the only question they ask then that means they're actually going to make independent uncontaminated judgments on that question and if like you said they have a preset threshold or rule of saying it has to be at least at this quality which is defined in this specific tangible way they don't move on and we i mean this sounds like it takes a lot of time it takes some time to set up we set this up with our recruiting process last year right you have to eat your own dog food but it meant that when we got in a room to discuss after we went through it, our discussion was like 15 minutes. We were done because we had everybody looked at the cover letters and resumes anonymized. We had for every cover letter and for every resume, they were looked at separate from each other. They were dis, you know, they were disaggregated. And then like if I was looking at a resume, I had five questions to answer that had predefined attributes. So conscientiousness is something that we value. You know, what's, where would they rate on conscientiousness? And we said, these are things that you might see in a cover letter or when we looked at the resume in a resume 
that indicates conscientiousness, like no typos. It was turned in on time. They mention managing lots of tasks in a timely fashion with one of their past experiences. And so it it just made, it almost turned us into algorithms, sort of, so to speak. Like we could use some of our judgment, but it was highly constrained to make sure we we're focusing on the right things and only the right things. It gave you some boundaries and some rules. Yeah. And so it's not about removing human judgment. It's about gaining it, right? Giving us guidelines so that all of those things that could creep in to, you know, impair our judgment, whether it's something we all do, a shared bias, or something that I do differently than my colleague Yumi, those things are constrained. They're not completely removed, but they're highly constrained so that we're focusing on just the right things at the right time. I love that. And just for listeners, when you say we did this, what are you talking about? Oh, so I research, teach, and practice behavioral science. This is that third pillar. I have a small consulting firm um, with amazing colleagues. And we did not always do our recruiting and hiring by the process that we would recommend to our clients. And so we said, that's that's a problem. We really, we can't be hypocritical. And so we redid our process last year, which it, it really doesn't take that much time once you do it. It's the investment. And then it just runs like clockwork. So defining the attributes that you care about, defining the scale you're going to measure them on, and then separating out all the content you get so that you evaluate each at once. And then we had a Google sheet in the background that took all our ratings and automated scores and then just ranked everybody. And we had like above the line, below the line. And we basically were done. I mean, the first round was super fast just because of setting up, like taking a few hours to set this process up in advance. I've been saying this for a long time because uh, I'm, I'm a process guy that it takes a long time to build the machine but the better you build the machine, the faster the machine runs. And so, you know, it's different to build it than it is to run it. And sometimes you have to slow down to build it the right way, but it's going to have you speed up so much faster because now you get to use that machine and it just, you know, churns out good decisions, good behaviors, good outcomes. So I think about that in my, in my own business. I have a, so you talk about checklists a couple of years ago, I created a checklist for myself that I do every Sunday. And I was just sitting there thinking like, man, I've got all these tasks that I need to complete during the week and I'm all over the place trying to complete them. Why don't I just prep all those tasks in a checklist? And so I go through and I, I just say, okay, let me do this. Let me do this. Let me do this. And then I get to, it clears all that mental space out of my head. I get all the balls moving that need to get moving for the week. And then I just go and I just do my work and all that stuff just comes to me because I've already set it all in motion and I've got a checklist to make, to know that I didn't miss anything. Yeah. I love that. Like checklist structure, good decision hygiene. Like they sound so boring, but they make you a super you. They help you bring the best version of yourself to that decision process every single time consistently. So it, it, it's like brushing your teeth. It's, it's boring. No one wants to do it, but it's going to help you, you know, in your life every single day. It, it really does create the super O'Brien. Yeah. A little bit of structure and a little bit of discipline really does create a lot of freedom to then go out and, you know, do the work and have fun in it and, totally. and live a meaningful life, you know, if you build a little structure in your life. So, Linnea, here's my softball for you. <laughs> Where do people go to figure out how to put this in place for their own life? Well, the first thing that I recommend would, of course, be check out the book Noise, A Flaw in Human Judgment by Danny, Cass, and Olivier. It's a great read. It's a long read. It's a big one. But it's, a, it's you know, it is the tome that will contain 
all the content. If they also want to supplement it or are more of an audiovisual learner, we built a course that is launching very, very soon. I'm editing the final stuff today. It's accessible on Teachable. I can give you the, the link. It's behavioralsite.teachable.com. We'll yeah. link to everything we've talked about in the show notes. And so people can go in and, and find all the people we've talked about, all the things we've talked about, can find your company, behavioral site, and can find this course. And by the time this airs, when are you scheduled to air the course? Do you know? Do you have a date yet? Oh, so this, so it'll be out by the time. It keeps happening. So, (laughs) so if you're listening to this, it's out there because it'll take us a few weeks to publish this and you can go find it and all the links will be in the show notes and stuff. So tell me about this course that you built. So the course was really built off of my teaching of the topics of noise and bias. So I've been working on this project since 2018 with the authors and because I also teach at University of Chicago, I, I tried out material in my classroom. And I will tell you, it did not work right away. Right? These are hard topics. There's statistics involved. People don't enjoy statistics. And so I've workshopped this content for the past three years in the classroom and then brought it into this online format. It is not one-to-one with the book. It is intentionally not one-to-one with the book. I actually did not reread the book until recently. So my last reading had been in August because I wanted to make sure that this course was standalone. It was on the, it's on the concepts that are in the book, but it's not one-to-one. It's more personal examples, different professional examples, different exercises to engage with what I think are the most important pieces of information for a business person to know. And so it's built for a business professional. Everything is less than 10 minutes. I basically built it for my husband who will not read a book. He's very, very smart. He has no time to read a book, but he does have time to listen to something that's 10 minutes or less on his walk to work. And so that's what we built it for. That's great. And what can people expect to get out of this? They can expect to get out of it, understanding all the topics that we talked about today. What's noise? What's bias? Where does it come from? Why should I care about it? How do I measure it in my organization if I want to see if it's there? When should I measure it? When should I just move on to try to solve it? And then if I want to try to solve it or decrease the level of noise, how do I do it? Yeah. What do I actually do about it? The goal is to empower people. I don't I, you know, this is a very, the topic right now is very popular given the book came out. I want people to be able to not just have a cocktail conversation about it, but actually with every single video, get at least one thing they can do differently because of it in their job, in their lives, to be better versions of themselves, to help their colleagues be better versions of themselves and turn down the noise. Well, I think that's a good point because so often we read a book and we go, oh man, that's that's such great information, but what do we actually do with it? Like, how are we actually taking that information and putting it into use in our own lives and our own decision-making and, and in our own behavior? One of the things that I've tried to do, because I was as guilty as anybody else of doing that. And, you know, probably still am to some degree, but I've actually slowed down the amount of nonfiction that I've been reading. And with the books that I read, trying to think, you know, is there a change to make with this? Is there an application with this? And and tried to use it. And I don't, you know, you can't use everything, but if you are in a position where there's noise, where you're making decisions, you know, if you're in any kind of decision-making capacity with groups of people or large quantities of data, you know, there's some stuff in here to be able to have some stuff that you can actually use and put into place is is a big help. Mm -hmm. And have it stick. You know, 
part of my biggest goals in teaching is I want the information to stick. I've given three hour lectures where people go, oh, that was amazing. And they don't remember anything, but they had a good time. This is about giving you at least one thing that you remember so that when you're in that situation at work, you go, oh my gosh, this is the idea that links. This is where I need to take action. Yep. And you've already heard me say this in the introduction, but Linnea was nice enough to offer listeners to the podcast a discount. So if you have found this conversation interesting and you want to go check this out, uh, you can type in McMahon75, that's M-C-M-A-H-O-N-7-5, and get a $75 discount off the course. So thank you, Linnea, for that. Absolutely. So I want to transition just to some of the more sort of general questions that I have here because I just love any opportunity to pick your brain. And if people want to learn more about noise, they can read the book and, and go on the course. What do you believe about people or business that might be contrarian to how the rest of the world views things? Curious how you think. Because I don't know everyone, I can't say it's necessarily contrarian to everyone. But sure. I will say this is popular contra- opinion. Yes, this has been contrarian when I talk with clients about it. People resist this idea, and I, I really don't think that they should which is having a paper trail. People don't like paper trails, particularly for their decisions, because if there's no paper trail, I can never be wrong. I do that too, by the way, right? We, it's so easy with hindsight bias after an event happens to misremember the probability we thought it would happen, to misremember our pushback, to misremember that we really didn't have uh, foresight into what was gonna actually unfold. But that's really bad for learning. It's great for my ego. It's really bad for organizational learning. And so I really believe in having a paper trail for your beliefs, for your inferences about the way the world is and the way the world could be. So tactically, what does that mean? If you are launching a product or, you know, you're doing HR, right? If you are putting uh, candidates through an interview process at each stage of product market research or here for HR of interviewing candidates, At each stage, are you writing down the probability that this person will be a good fit or that this product is going to make it to market? Are you adjusting that over time? Every time I get new information about that product or that person, my priors are still there, but I have a new set of data. And so I should update my prior beliefs and they should move up or down, or maybe they stay the same, but I feel more confident in them. And then eventually you get to the end of the process, whether it's market research or hiring, And I have my final probability and I can see how it was updated over time, which also means I can see if I over indexed from a certain new piece of information, what was most helpful for me in that process. And then finally, when I finally see, does that person three months later succeed in the company? Does that product take off in the market? I can compare it to my belief and I might've been wrong. And that itself is going to be information and then I can use for the next time I go through this process. So it's it's kind of like a Fitbit for your decisions. We track our steps. We track our sleep. Why don't we track our beliefs so that we can learn from that data and get better over time? Have you read Thinking in Bets? Yes. By Annie Duke? So I'm a huge Annie Duke fan and another miracle of the right timing. I'm doing research with her at Wharton. She's amazing. And this is exactly, you know, right? We, I think so much like her. I agree with so much of what she says. I obviously don't have her expertise. But yes, yes, 100 times over, this is exactly the way she thinks. Yeah, so Thinking in Bets is a great book for people who haven't read it or heard of it. Annie Duke was a professional poker player and now talks about how to make better decisions. 
Yeah. Sorry, she has another book. I'm trying to grab it for you. There's she has she has yet another book and I don't have it off the top of my head. Yeah, she's fantastic. So anybody who hasn't checked out Annie Duke, if you like the topics of decision making, she'd be a good one to check out. What are you sick of talking about these days? Bias. <laughs> I think this is from my consulting work. A lot of new clients that we work with are, you know, and understandably so, really excited about psychological biases, anchoring and ease of recall and overconfidence because it it gives them another toolkit by which to find patterns in the world, right? Oh, there was anchoring. Oh, you have ease of recall. Oh, you have overconfidence. I think that the challenge is that it's so easy to see these patterns, it's really hard to validate that they're actually there. And I think people in my field, including myself, have over-indexed on telling the story of bias, of finding these patterns in the world and trying to explain behaviors, explain bad hiring decisions, explain bad product outcomes using these biases, that we kind of stop there. We say, well, that's a satisfying explanation. Great, I can just blame bias and move on. But we don't actually try to test whether it's there. We don't actually say, I think ease of recall is happening in this situation. So I'm going to write down my hypothesis. I'm going to test it in this way in future data. Gosh, that's so much work. That's so hard. Why would I do that? And so we kind of rest on explanation because we can see a pattern that's compelling, but we don't flip it to the much more useful side of things, which is prediction. Saying, okay, if I have this belief, I think I see this in the data. Let me go test it and learn to see if it's actually there. I think we would all be better served if we switched from bias and explanation just towards prediction. Which well, my next question was going to be, what should people be talking more about? And I guess that's it right there, right? Prediction. Yeah, I know. It's. I think our need to explain the world gets in our way of our ability to predict it. Oh, can you unpack that a little bit more? For that's sure. interesting. The need to explain our world gets in the way of our ability to predict it. Absolutely. Hmm. Because we're trying to make sense of things in the past rather than trying to use those things to understand trends that might happen in the future. And I think there's an ego component to it. If I look at a mistake that happened in the past, let's use mistakes because that's you know where a lot of our attention often is in business. Someone messed up, hiring didn't go well, product didn't go well. I'm going to go look and do a postmortem and say, what went wrong? And I'm going to point to all these biases, or maybe they're not biases, and I'm going to point to what went wrong. As soon as I've landed on an explanation for what went wrong that's satisfying, that, quote, makes sense, I get this relief. I go, oh, I understand the world. I know the world, which to me imputes that I control it. Like, if I understand and know the world, I control the world. It means I'm going to do better next time. But just because I can explain something ex post, does not mean I can predict it ex ante. And in fact, if I truly want to control the world, I need to write down a prediction, a hypothesis of what's going to happen, and then see if it actually turns out. Now, this doesn't mean you have to run an experiment, but you can say, hey, I think that O'Brien is, that whenever he speaks first in a meeting, we always end up with a bad decision because everyone just does what O'Brien says. Okay, cool, let's test that then. Let's go in the next meeting. And let's not have O'Brien speak. In fact, let's have the meeting without O'Brien. And let's see what happens. That takes effort. That takes coordination. And that also takes me being able to risk being wrong, 
which explanation in history doesn't do. I can just say this was compelling and believe that I understand. A prediction ex ante is, a, is about vulnerability and taking a risk. And so it's really hard to do, but it is the only way we learn. I'm so glad that I have smart friends like you to help me out. <laughs> this is my obsession right now with my PhD is studying that. So I oh. can talk for it for a while. <laughs> okay. Last question, because I know we're short here. What is the purpose of business? I somewhat feel like an imposter because while I'm in business, I'm in a tiny little business, right? Running a five-person operation is nothing like, you know, what you do or what my husband does running a much larger one. But I, to me, the purpose of business is empowering individual growth, like at its best. And I put out a product, I put out a service that's going to help that end user grow and self-actualize in some way, do something better, be better, be a better version of themselves. Inside the company, particularly if you're a leader of it, like your goal should be to empower the growth of each individual within that company. And kind of like a relationship, you can't always predict where that growth is going to go, which means if you, know, if you value that person and their, their addition to the company, that means your company might then grow to sort of keep them within it. But you create a new role to fit this new desire that they have to grow in a certain direction. It's kind of like the ability to have one plus one be more than two. By empowering the growth of the individuals in the company, you will empower the company's growth, but you all you have to kind of flex together. And I think the same thing is true for your services and your products. You know, they will shift and change if you're attentive to the growth that your customers want and need, which may not always be what you anticipated. Beautiful. I love that. Linnea, this has been an awesome conversation that went by way too fast for me. I knew that was going to happen, but I, I always love being able to pick your brain and it's fun to be able to do this in, in kind of a little bit more formal setting and, and really go deep on some of these topics. So thank you for coming on. Uh, is there anything else that you want to say or places that you want to point people to find you or, or do work with you? No, I, I would say read the book, check out the course, keep listening to O'Brien's podcast because he's a smart guy as well and has such great questions and is probably one of the best listeners that I know. So. Just go back to O'Brien is what I would recommend. All right. And I'll point you to Linnea. Linnea, (laughs) thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, O'Brien. Great to be here. Hey, folks, one last thing before you go. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to hit subscribe so you can stay up to date with future guests. That's it. Thanks for coming. Go make the most of your business and the people in it.